Well, in his acceptance speech, President-elect Donald Trump last week said this, to all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. You know, it's always promising when politicians who have just spent the better part of a year attacking one another talk like this. I mean, it gives one reason to hope that maybe finally we can rise above partisanship and actually accomplish some things uh, in government. But forgive me if I have my doubts. You see, I've, I've heard this kind of thing before. I remember the words of our current president on this topic when he was first elected. In his acceptance speech, Obama said this, let's resist the temptation to fall back on the same partisanship and pettiness and immaturity that has poisoned our politics for so long. How long did that last? Weeks, maybe. It held for a short while, and then partisanship took over, and it was business as usual again. So what is a partisan? Well, the word means simply to be a part of something. That's the root of the word, and that's what it means, to be a part of something. Well, that doesn't sound that bad. The problem is this. In order to be a part of one thing, you're often choosing not to be a part of another. So if you choose, for example, to be a Democrat, it means that you are also choosing against Republican ideology, and that's divisive. So it seems that for the sake of peace, it would be best if people would just stop choosing sides. We should just rise above partisanship, as is often said, and just stop thinking like Democrats or Republicans or really any other group. The problem is that nobody seems to really be able to do this for very long or, for, or very well. Even those who declared themselves to be independent in this last election, well, for the most part, they voted either for the Republican candidate or for the Democratic candidate. And even those who didn't vote for one of those two, they voted usually for someone who was part of another party. This partisanship thing seems to be strong. And the reason is because we are, by nature, partisans. Politics is just a tip of the partisan iceberg. There really is no way for us to rise above this. It's part of our decision-making process. It's a part of how we do life. And when you get down to the core of the human soul, we are people who pick groups. We just do this over and over again. We always have. And whether you know it or not, the decisions that you have made and will make have more to do with the friends you've chosen than your rational thought process. So in this season of national decision-making, we have been looking at how to make good personal decisions. And today we're going to conclude this series by looking at the role that partisanship plays in our own personal decision-making. Not political partisanship, but personal partisanship. And I want to share with you three principles that I think will be very helpful as you make your decisions. Principle number one is this. Pick party before path. Pick party before path. What I mean by this is decide your affiliation first, and then go ahead and make your individual decisions. Now, we love the idea of being independent thinkers, but the truth is we are more social thinkers. We pick a group to be a part of, and then that group shapes our decisions. They don't necessarily tell us what to do, but as we are a part of this group, it shapes and influences what we decide to do. So all I'm saying is, understand this and be rational about the group that you decide to be a part of. You're going to pick a group. Just be aware of it and do it carefully. 
You know, we agree that the best decisions are impartial. And they're based on just the facts, not any previous loyalties, not any belonging to any group. But do you remember how the 2000 presidential election was decided? Remember that disaster? Well, it came down to the vote in the state of Florida. And it was between Bush and Al Gore. And it finally went all the way to the Supreme Court, and that election was decided by the Supreme Court, the top court in our land. Now, the Supreme Court is made up of the best thinkers in our nation. That's how they get there. They are to be the most objective of all. It's our highest court. But do you remember how the Supreme Court voted? 5-4. The five justices who had been nominated by presidents who were Republican voted guess for which party? The Republican Party. The four who had been nominated by Democratic presidents, well, they voted for the Democratic nominee in that election. They voted right along party lines. I mean, they, they considered all of the facts in the Florida election. And when it came right down to it, they voted along party lines. It was as if a great secret had been let out at that point. No one is truly objective. Not even Supreme Court justices. Now, th these are smart people. And they couldn't even get beyond partisanship. Now, objective means that the object determines the decision. That's the root of that word and what it means. Now, an object is something that you see, a, a fact that you can observe. And so when you're objective, what that means is that the facts that you can see drive or determine the decision that you make. Subjective is the counterpart to objective. Subjective means that the subject, you, the person, make the decision. That's what drives the decision. Now, why can't we just be objective when it comes to decision-making? Well, the reason is because so many of the important decisions that we make are not about objects. I and mean, we can be objective if it's just an objective decision that's required. Objectivity is easy if you're just dealing with visible objects. You know, everyone... When this service is over, you're going to leave this room, and everyone's going to be objective about it. You're going to exit through one of these doors. No one's going to try to walk through the wall, because that's a physical object. You can see. You can see the doors. So you're, everyone's going to make a very good objective decision, because you're dealing with objects. But what about the stuff that you can't see? What about a crime that you didn't see, and you're on a jury, and you have to make a decision? Or a presidential candidate that you can only see on TV, a highly edited version of this person, and, and you're required to vote. What about a marriage decision that has a future you can't see? Or a parenting decision that you don't know how it's going to turn out? What about a future that you can only imagine or a God that you cannot see? How do you make these decisions? You know, for example, on the marriage decision, you know, if, if you could look at the person that you are dating and see how things would turn out if you married them? You could see the whole future unfold before you if you chose this person or that person. Well, then you could be objective. But you can't. If you could see the long-term impact of a parenting decision, you could be objective. But you can't. So the, the really important decisions in life involve a lot of subjectivity. You're just going to have to make a judgment call. You're going to have to decide. So does this mean we just... Kind of guess, flip a coin, doesn't really matter because we can't see what's going to happen anyways. No, 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 you can still gather 
a number of objective facts and enter them into your mind as evidence to weigh as you make your subjective decision. But in order to decide, realize this, you're going to have to venture beyond pure objectivity. You're going to have to venture into the realm of subjectivity. You're going to have to take the pieces that you have, the objective facts that you have, and add to them the pieces that you don't have or don't know in order to come up with a decision. You're going to have to fill in the blanks with your own best judgment. And that is subjective. 1 Corinthians 13, 9-13 identifies how it is that we reason. It's a very good description of our thought process. This is what it says. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We only know a part, and we can only see a part of the future unfold. But when the perfection comes, it's speaking of Jesus' return, when Jesus comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. What is this saying? Partisans are those who only know in part. That's the root of the word. We, we only know a part. That's us. We can only see a few of the pieces of reality. We can't see everything. So when, when we take on the role of a prophet and try to figure out what decision that we need to make now that will turn out best for us, we're far from perfect. We're not very good as prophets. Now, we, we do our best. We make the decision that we think is going to work out best in the future, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes, boy, we really get it wrong. Because, well, we're far from perfect. We are imperfect. Because we only see in part. We just know a part. Our reasoning really is, is like that of a child. You know, two-year-olds are almost completely subjective. You know, the facts really don't matter. They want what they want. Now, as adults, as it says here, we, we grow up and we put childish thought processes behind us. So compared to a two-year-old, as an adult, your decision-making process should be a whole lot better. Now, sadly, some aren't, but, you know, Generally, people grow and they think a little better than two-year-olds. And the reason is because they, they are able to access more pieces of data, and therefore they have a clear objective view of, of the whole picture. They still don't know everything, but they know more than a two-year-old does. But when it comes again to the really important decisions, we are still kind of like children. And that's because there really are three things in life right now that matter most. Three types of decisions that really will shape our life. As it says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. We have to make decisions in these three areas. And it has a huge impact on who we become and the kind of life that we build. Faith, these are decisions about who or what we put our trust in. Every one of us makes faith decisions. We decide to trust in something. It may not be God, but what we're... We're building our life based on something that we can't see that we're trusting in. And then hope. These are the decisions about the kind of future that we want to work for, what it is that we really want to build in life. 
and then love. These are the decisions about who we give our heart to, who we open up to, and who we really love. Now, there are objective facts that you can gather in each of these three categories, but it's still like looking at a poor reflection in a mirror. The idea is kind of a, a, a dirty and cracked and somewhat warped mirror. So you gather all the objective facts you want in the area of faith and in the area of the hope of what you want to build and the area of who you can trust. You gather all the objective facts that you can, and that's wise to do. But when you add them all up and you look at that, you're still looking at reality with, with some broken pieces and some warped things, and you, and you just don't have a complete, clear picture in any of these areas. You know in part. Now, when we leave this life and stand before God face to face, well, then we're going to see how all the pieces fit together. Then we'll be, oh, okay, I see it all now. But not now. Now we know in part. We just know a part. So to help us fill in the pieces that we can't see, we all choose a big picture, a view of the world that helps us see where all the pieces go together, how it all fits together. It's kind of like what we do whenever we build a puzzle. You may do that this Thanksgiving or over Christmas. And like this girl, you know, you pull all the pieces together and then you set the picture on the front of the puzzle box in front of you. And you take an individual piece and you look at the color and you look at the shape and you try to fit, and then you look at the picture on the box and you try to figure out now where in this completed overall picture might this piece be? And you keep, you know, looking down and working, you keep referencing it backwards and forwards as you try to build your puzzle. This is what we do in life. We take this individual day and our individual life and the individual things that are in front of us and, and we try to figure out, okay, now where do we fit? What are we supposed to be about? What are we trying to accomplish? And we keep looking at our big picture and then we take the piece that we have and then we try to fit it together and we, we try to build our life based on whatever the picture is that we think life is really all about. This is why we become a part of things. Because becoming a part of something bigger than you gives you a bigger picture of your life. It gives you an overall picture. Because we only know in part, that's why we become a part of other pieces and a picture and an image that's bigger. It helps us figure out where the individual pieces of our life go, and it forms the framework of the decisions that we make. I grew up in a, a Christian home. I was told about and given the picture that the Bible paints about who we are and who God is and what the world is and how it all fits together. Now, it doesn't tell us everything about life, but it's a big picture of how things are supposed to fit together. But then when I was in college, I decided that I needed to look at the facts that supported all of the God pictures. You see, because I, I kind of accepted this picture as a child, but as I got older, I put childish ways behind me and and I became more and more rational in my decision-making process. And I wanted to know, well, am I building my life on this picture just because that's what my parents told me, or is this what I'm convinced of? So I, I looked at all of the objective facts that support the different God pictures. And I became convinced that the Christian faith, what the Bible says, fits best with the real objective pieces of data in this world. You see, if if you look at all the big God pictures, what you'll find over and over again is that there are pieces in this world that some of them they just don't have answers for. 
I mean, if you're building a puzzle this Thanksgiving and you've got four or five bright orange pieces and you look at the, at the picture on the puzzle box and there's not a single piece of orange on the box, you know you've got the wrong picture, right? Because there's nothing in this picture that fits with these pieces. And that's what I ran into as I kept looking at the different God ideas. Is, is Other than the Bible, there was nothing else that, that had answers for every piece that I experienced, that I knew, that I could discover. And so I decided to recommit myself to the Christian view of things, to the Christian faith. I decided that it, that fit best with all the objective pieces of data in this world. Now, whenever I face a decision, I still examine all of the objective facts that I need to know about this decision. I try to be as objective and rational as possible. But I also now have a clear image of who I am and what God wants of me. So that really helped me choose who it was I was going to marry and make some career decisions and other kinds of decisions because I still need to gather pieces, but, but I, I had a picture that I was building from. And I knew where the pieces went together. So the question I have for you this morning is, what's the picture on the front of your puzzle box? The big picture. What, what are, what's the image that you're trying to build your life around? Does it fit with reality? Does it answer the bigger questions? And is it big enough? Oftentimes, people settle for just small little pictures, little pieces. You know, for example, being a part of the Democratic Party or Republican Party, well, that, that gives you some bigger answers. It, it maybe tell you some things about how to view the world economically or the role of government, but it's not going to help you with marriage. It's not going to help you raise kids. It's not going to help you, you know, make a lot of big decisions in life. It's just not big enough. So are, are you living for a picture that's, that's big enough to fit all of the pieces of your life into? So first, pick your party before you start making choices before you start walking down a path. The second principle is this. Pick people before place. Pick people before place. Here's what I mean. When we, when we decide which big picture will be on the puzzle box of our life, it's never just an intellectual decision. It's also a social decision. But we gravitate to people who are using the same picture that we are to make decisions and build a life. Now, we should be kind and polite to everyone, even people who are building very differently than we are. But the people that we let into our hearts tend to be those who see the world the way we do. Why? Well, it's because, as it says in the verse that we just read, we're like little children who know very little. And we feel this insecurity, even if we've got all kinds of bluster in front of us. And how is it that children grow up in this world? Do we just send them out into the world all by themselves to pull the pieces together? No, that'd be tragic. They are part of families. And it's in those families that they learn how to perceive more of life than they know. So if, like me, you've chosen the Christian picture, the picture of the Bible, and you're using it to make your decisions, to build your life piece by piece, what you need now is you need to choose a Christian family, a church. This is why church is such a major theme throughout the New Testament, because we, we need to be a part of a group that's using that picture 
as we begin to build our lives. So in Hebrews 13, 7, it says this, speaking of a church, it says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So there's two parts in this. One is the leaders of this church are speaking God's word, and the second is they're living a kind of life that people say, I want a life like that. So let me ask you, which one, or how long does it take to do the first one? To listen to a leader in a church speak the word of God to you. Well, you're all doing it right now, so check that one off. Done. Okay? You're doing it. Doesn't take long at all. 35, 40 minutes, we'll be done. You listen to a leader in a church speak the word of God to you. But the second one, how long would that take? Well, I don't know, but it'd it take longer, right? It takes longer to... To, to know enough about someone to say, you know what? I, I would like a marriage like that. I know it's not perfect, but I would like the, I can see the outcome of that marriage and, and I want to imitate that. Or I, I want to raise kids like they've raised kids. Or I want to have a joy like they've got joy. I want to treat people the way they treat people. Well, that takes time and, and you have to get closer to people to really see that. You see, the amount of objective evidence supporting the Christian worldview is abundant. There's lots of it. But seeing the picture in the Bible is usually not enough to get us to make the decisions to actually build our life according to that picture. It's usually not until we see the outcome in a real person's life that we know and trust, that we are convinced enough to actually build our life according to the picture in the Bible. That's just the way we are. I mean, most people aren't going to listen to anything I say and say, you know what, I'm going to change my entire life right now. That's just not the way we are. Partly that's to protect us from being just naive and gullible. We really know that I want to see if this works. Okay, it sounds good, sounds interesting, but... Does it really work? And it's not until we see it in a person's life over years that we become convinced, you know what? That idea not only sounds good, it looks like it actually works. And we look at our life and we say, it's not really working that well in this area, so I think I might want to start making decisions based on that truth. It's not enough to hear the truth. We need to see it in real 3D. That's just the way we are as we make decisions. This is why it's important to, to do more than just attend a particular church, say, on Sundays. I mean, that's good to do, but it's not really going to have an impact on you if, if that's all you do. You know, I, I am speaking the Word of God to you today, and it will help if you do it. But, but you can't get to know my life by just listening to me on Sunday mornings. I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you what I want to tell you. Maybe I'm lying about my life. Maybe I'm hiding all kinds, and I'm not, but you don't know that. You have to know me enough over time to know whether or not I'm really doing this. And you need to see that in someone before you're convinced to actually do it yourself. So it's as you get involved in this church, as you get involved in, say, our weekly growth groups. It's as you serve on one of our teams on Sundays or other times during the week. It's as you go on our men's and women's retreats. It's as you take advantage of the training opportunities that we have throughout the year. It's as you do these kinds of things, you actually get involved in the life of the church. 
It's in that context that you really get to know people who are doing this. And you can observe their way of life. And you can ask questions of them to help you do what it is that they are doing. Now, no one does this perfectly, but, but until you can see this in real three-dimensional life, it's not going to be convincing enough. Active church life is the place where the two-dimensional picture of the Bible becomes three-dimensional. Two-dimensional black and white words are, have power, but nothing like three-dimensional lives do. Now, if we could see all of the facts, then we wouldn't need to be a part of groups, but we can't. So we need to be a part of groups. Choose wisely. Look at the outcome of their life. You know, if you're a parent, you want someone that's maybe a little ahead of you so that you can get some input from them. Look at the outcome of their way of life. Now, the reason I say in this point, people before place, is because when it comes to church, we often tend to reverse this order. We think more of place, and oh yeah, there's people there too. I mean, it, this is a place. This is an address. You can see us on Google Earth. We are here. But, but the real power of church is not the place. The place is needed, it's important, but it's the people that you link your life together with. So let's say, for example, you've spent, oh, maybe 10 years as a part of a church, this church or some other church. And you've done more than just attend occasionally on Sunday mornings. You, you've actually gotten involved in the life of the church. You haven't done everything, but you've done enough so that you really can get to know some people and you've built some relationships of trust. And there's some people that, whose lives you know, you, are attractive to you because you've considered the outcome and you're learning and you're growing. What that means is that for you, the Bible is more three-dimensional than it is two-dimensional. It's more real. But then you decide to move away. That's fine. People do that. Maybe you move away for work. Maybe it's because houses are more affordable, which is true of pretty much every other place you could move. Maybe it's because taxes are lower, which again is true of pretty much any other place you could go. Now, it's not wrong to move, of course. But often in the process of moving, church tends to be thought of more in terms of place than people. And if you're going to move, you have to realize this is a huge shift. You're going to have to build a whole set of different relationships, and that's just going to take time. Sometimes people think of the church more like a grocery store when they make a move. You know, when you make a move to another community, you don't ever go to that community and say, hey, one of the key things I want to make sure, are there grocery stores here? I mean, you just know there are. There's people there. They're alive. There's grocery stores. And you make the same assumption about churches. In, in America, you're probably not off. Are there any churches in this city? Yeah, there are. And so your thought is, well, I'll get my job lined up and I'll get you know, the house figured out. And then I'll probably shop for groceries at a nearby store, and I'll start looking for a church that I like, and once I find one that I like, then I'll start shopping there. But church is not heaven's grocery store simply dispensing God's words. Church is really more like a living community displaying it in real life. And it just 
takes time to get to know people well enough to consider the outcome of their life and trust them. You know how long it takes for people just to trust someone enough to be honest about their life? Well, depending on the person, but for most people, it's years before they're ever going to be honest enough to say, hey, I'm really struggling in this area. I mean, that takes a lot of trust. You don't just walk into a new group and say, hey, bleh, here's who I am. Here's what I'm struggling with. I mean, people would just say, okay, <laughs> you're weird. I mean, just, you just take time. You're wise to do so. What I'm saying is you can change grocery stores and have, it will have absolutely no effect on your physical nutrition. But a church change, it's much more complicated than that. Again, I'm, I'm, it's not wrong to move. It's not wrong to change churches. But what I'm saying is that if, if you've been a part of a church and you've really linked lives together with people and you move, you change churches, I can promise you your spiritual nutrition will go down for a period of time. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means factor that in as you're making decisions. Think more deeply than how much do houses cost and what are the taxes and do they have grocery stores there? Think people. Pick people before place. And then principle number three is this. Decide yes before what? Decide yes before what? Jesus says this in John 7, 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. What he's saying here is the decision to surrender your will to God will always precede clarity from God. Now, we wish it was the other way around. We wish we could say, God, show us everything, and then we'll decide. And God says, no, you decide to do whatever I tell you to do, and then I'll show you what to do. Oh, can't we do it the other way around? Nope. So what's happening here in John 7, 17 is, is people are coming to Jesus to see if he really is from God. They've heard about the miracles. There's a tremendous buzz surrounding the life of Jesus at this time, and so large crowds are gathering. And Jesus knows that this isn't just an objective evaluation. He knows that the real issue is subjective, like pretty much any big decision is. And he knows that the problem for most of them is this, is that they didn't want to do God's will. Now, we don't know in what way, but there was something in their life where they had already decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to obey God in this area. There was some big no in their life to God. Now, Jesus had done lots of miracles, and he knows that they really didn't need any more objective proof. It wasn't like, oh, okay, miracle number 48, now I'm convinced. They didn't need more miracles. That's why sometimes he refused to do them, because he knew that now the issue wasn't you need more objective. I've, I've given you a lot of evidence. What they needed to do is they just simply needed to decide whether they were going to do God's will or not. Now, many, many people still do this today. What they say is, you know, I just need more proof before I'll follow Jesus. And maybe they do. Maybe they need some more facts to be gathered. There was a time in my life where I really needed to figure out a lot of facts, so that's fine. But oftentimes, the truth is that they have a subjective reason why they don't want to follow Jesus. And so they'll keep saying, now nah, I need more proof. That's not enough. Like these people, you know, 45 miracles, that's not enough. I need, I need, I need five more. Well, what will that do? Well, now five more. 
And that just keeps going on. I mean, I find myself in some conversation with people where I'm answering questions and I'm telling them, you know, what I've discovered. And, and I answer the question, and they go, huh, okay, well, what about this? And then I answer that question, and, well, what about that? And it kind of dawns on me, it's like, this could go on for a while. <laughs> so oftentimes, I'll just say, so let me ask you this. If, if I'm able to answer all your questions, or someone's able to answer all your questions, and the evidence points to that this really is true, is there something in your life that would need to change if you decide to follow Jesus? And almost always, it's like, oh, oh yeah. Sometimes I'll ask them what it is, and sometimes I can tell by the look in their eyes they're not going to tell me. So I'll just say, well, if, if this is true, are you willing to change in that area? Are you willing to, ta- are you willing to say yes in that area? And most often what they'll say is, nah. So what I realized at that point is like, oh, we've been talking about objective facts, but there's a subjective thing that's going on here. There's a subjective no that's... All the objective questions are a cover-up for the subjective no. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You've got to decide first whether you're going to do this or not. For me, this has been true over and over again in big decisions and even smaller ones. And one of the biggest decisions of my life was to leave the advertising career that I, I was in and come pastor this church 26 years ago. And I did not get any clarity on that until I finally came to the point of surrendering to God and told him that I would do whatever he wanted me to do, even give up that promising career. It wasn't until I said yes. Now, again, heaven didn't open at that moment, and God said, now do this. <laughs> but at that moment, when I surrendered, when I, I mean, I remember when I actually said, God, I'll, I'll do whatever. Then I, I began, the fog began to push back. And I began to see, okay, this is the next step I need to take. And then a period of about five months, we moved here with our two little kids. If you were here when we bought this land and built these buildings, you know, clarity about doing this was, it just wasn't clear what to do for the better part of a year. And I still remember the meeting, I think there was about 23 or 24 of us in a room we were trying to figure out on this particular property. And there was just a decision that, you know, even before that we had a meeting where we decided, you know, we don't know what to do next, but we're willing to do whatever. We're willing to give whatever God wants us to give. We're willing to put up whatever time it takes to do this. We're willing to go through whatever hassle it takes. We just want to do whatever God wants to do. And it wasn't until we surrendered that the next steps began to open up. So if you're confused about a particular decision and you keep saying, God, show me what to do, and it's just nothing but fog, It could be, I don't know, but it could be that you have an area of your life that you are unwilling to surrender to God in. There's some part of your life where you're just saying, no. Now, you're not telling anyone, but God knows. Probably the person you're married to knows. But you just got a no in your life. Well, Jesus says, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you any more objective pieces until you subjectively say yes first. Then you'll see. Not everything, but you'll see the next piece. We are subjective first, then we are objective. There's no getting around the fact that we can only see in part. That's why we're subjective. 
We, we can see enough to pick the worldview that best fits with what is. So pick your party affiliation well. Pick a, a God view that's big enough and that the pieces of reality fit into. And then pick a church that you can grow in. Choose people before place. Get involved beyond just Sunday morning so that you can actually begin to observe the outcomes to a person's life. You know how long that, that takes time, like I said. That means you need to see them make a decision and then see how it works out. And then decide to say yes before you decide what the next step should be. Surrender. Say, God, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever in this area. And for me, usually it comes down to, I'll even do that. Because often for me, there, there's something that's like, I'll do this and this, but I'll never do that. Don't ask me to do that. It's not until I say, okay, I'll even do that. Whatever it is, I surrender. Then things get clear. Now, Jesus gave us a tangible way to really declare all three of these principles. And we're going we're gonna to enact what he told us to do by sharing communion together. On the eve of his crucifixion, he shared a meal with his disciples. And at the beginning of that meal, he broke bread. And he said, this bread is a symbol of my body, which is about to be broken into pieces, chunks of it, broken off of me for you because of your sin, my body for you. And then at the end of the meal, he lifted a glass of wine and he said, this was a symbol of his blood that was about to be spilled in exchange for our lives. And then he told us, his disciples and then all who would follow him, he told us to do this together in remembrance of him. And then he also said that every time you do this, you will be declaring my death until I return. What that means is every time we do this, we are declaring our commitment to follow Jesus until he returns, until, as that verse says, we see him face to face and all of the pieces are clear. But this side, with our big pile of puzzle pieces, we declare that we are putting the pieces of our life together based on that picture, the picture in the Bible. So this is the declaration that you're a follower of Christ, that you have, in fact, picked your party affiliation. You're a Christian. You're a Christ follower. This is the declaration of that. So if you've yet to decide on that, that's completely fine. We're so glad you're here trying to figure out whether this is something that you want to be a part of. But I would ask you just when we pass... The, the bread and the juice, it's all going to come in one package. But I'd ask you just to let it pass. We're not going to single it out or do anything, but this is just for those of us who have decided already to follow Jesus. So if you're not in that group, that's fine. Just let it pass. Now, we also do this as a church, not as individuals in our homes, because it's, it's about the people that we link our lives together with. So we do this together. We follow Jesus together. And then we do this also as a way of saying yes again to Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, there was a point in time where you said yes. But what you've discovered is over and over and over again, you need to say yes again. Yes in this area, yes in that area. 
So whenever you partake of communion as a follower of Christ, what you're saying is you're surrendering again. You're saying, Jesus, I'll, I'll do whatever you need me to do. And that's the statement that you're making when you partake today. So I want to invite the ushers to come forward at this time and begin to distribute the bread and the juice. As I said, it's all in, in one package. So just go ahead and hold on to this uh, until I lead us together. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a moment of, of silence to examine our hearts and do some business with God before we uh, remember the death and the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and our commitment to follow Him. So use this time. It'll just be a minute or two. Uh, if there's some sin that you need to confess, go ahead and confess that sin. Do that silently. If there's a relationship that you need to take a step in to clear up, you may not be able to get the relationship exactly back on track, but there's the next move for you to make, then purpose in your heart to take that next step as soon as you can this afternoon. If there's an important decision that you're facing, then I would encourage you to use this time to, take, to, to surrender to God. If, that, if there's a big no in your life, don't partake of this with a no in your heart. Say yes. Surrender. So we're going to participate, or we're going to take some moment of silent prayer. So just go ahead and do this silently, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer to close that time, and then lead us in communion together. So let's pray silently together. Jesus, we bow before you in our hearts this morning. And we, first of all, we thank you for your body broken for us and your blood that was poured completely out for us. Your perfect life given in exchange for our imperfect ones. Without your sacrifice, there would be no hope of a relationship with you no hope that we could ever see you face to face, that we could ever build our lives according to what you designed for us to build. So we thank you for your sacrifice, and we remember it now, this morning. We'll go ahead and peel off the, the first layer to get at that little wafer of unleavened bread. What Jesus said um, on that Passover meal before his crucifixion, he stood up, broke the bread into pieces, little pieces, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together in remembrance of him. Now go ahead and peel back the next layer to get at the juice. At the end of the meal, Jesus stood up again. He poured a 
glass of wine, a cup of wine, and he said this, holding it up, he said, this cup is the new covenant, which means new agreement, new legal agreement written in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us your words. They don't contain every single piece, but they can't contain enough pieces to give us the picture that we need to build a life from. We thank you for those that have gone before us who have taken you at your word, who have made decisions. We know not perfectly, but decision after decision. And we have now seen the fruit of that in their life. And we are now more convinced that this really is the kind of life that we want. We pray that you would help us make these decisions and help us to be these kind of people for those that may be behind us on the, on the trail. Help us as we make our decisions. For those here today that are in the fog of a big decision and they've got a no on their hearts, I pray that you'd help them identify what that no is and that you would help them surrender that so that they can begin to see what their next step is. And we do pray for our country. We pray for our new incoming president. God, we ask that you'd give him clarity and insight in the middle of all of the voices and all of the input. Help him choose a transition team and, and the new cabinet with, with good people that are moral, that will provide protection for us as a nation and grant us prosperity and peace. We know we don't deserve that, but we ask that you would do that. And then we ask for help as we make our personal decisions. Guide us, we pray. We need insight. Help us build the lives that you intended for us to build. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.